Welcome to The Hard Question. I'm Blanquita Cullum, and I have a great guest for you today. He is the chief political columnist and White House correspondent for Newsmax and a very dear friend of mine for many years, John Gizzi. And John, we have so much to cover. I want to begin with what has now turned out to be a very controversial press conference that uh, President Joe Biden conducted this week, his first press conference in months, and he went impromptu. It lasted almost two hours, and you had this week as well, the uh, White House press secretary having to do cleanup for the president. Let me just uh, tell you the one thing, and, and I know you'll have a lot to say about it. The president was chastised by the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, and the government of Ukraine about the president's comments about the United States responding to a minor incursion by Russia. And they said there are no minor incursions. What's going on there, John? A lot of people are concerned about the president being able to talk off the cuff and having to go back and backtrack everything he said because he doesn't really know what he's saying, or does he? Jen Psaki, the president's spokeswoman, uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken, and others were doing overtime at cleanup today, essentially saying they regard any kind of incursion, any kind of interference by Russia with Ukraine as an assault that will be met. Now, uh, it should be noted, and I don't think the president had this in his briefing papers, there are other ways than the suggestive um, scenario of Russian troops amassed along the border going into Ukraine. Um, For example, Laura Mandeville of the French venerable publication Le Figaro points out that using cyberspace and a cyber attack, the Russians could easily take out their Ukraine counterparts and pave the way for an uprising. In addition, Ms. Mandeville pointed out that both in Crimea uh, back in 2014, and before that in the state of Assetia in Georgia in 2008, There there were anti-fascist committees, as they were known, groups of Russian-speaking residents of Ossetia and later Ukraine who started. And then the Russians claimed they were being persecuted, and this was one of the reasons for a real live incursion with troops and tanks. And so it could be that supporting a false flag operation within the country could be that kind of incursion. Now, again, whether U.S. intelligence is up to knowing how this taking place remains to be seen. The concern is that has been expressed by uh, Ukraine and other diplomats is that this statement, while the president may have meant something else, he said what he said. And people are saying, when you watch him, or do I judge my lying eyes or my lying ears to what I believe I saw and what I heard to be valid? And how? where is the cleanup? Is the cleanup the law or the president's words when he said it the law? Well, he didn't leave any doubts when he said it at the news conference. 
Perhaps if he had said, let me explain this right then and there, we wouldn't be talking about it. On the other hand, it should be noted that when something is established right away, it's very hard for subsequent explanations to undo it. I recall vividly when President Ford, in his final debate with opponent Jimmy Carter, kept insisting Poland was free. And what he meant was that the Poles themselves thought of them as a free people. But the way it came out, it was like he did not understand the communist domination of an Eastern European country. I can see the same thing evolving from the statements the other day. John, I, I want to talk to you then about the political chessboard. You know, if you have um, agencies in Washington, D.C., for example, the State Department that operates like a fiefdom, and you have a Secretary of State, but you have many people who are leaders in high-level divisions within the State Department that communicate with leadership from other countries. How does that balance out when the president is making a statement and even his own cognitive ability is being questioned by a member of your own press? Mm -hmm. Well, it's very simple. Uh, there are back channels and openings to different countries that uh, transcend the actual White House or the State Department to the foreign ministry and even lower levels. Let me give you an example. Secretary Blinken is considered the closest of the cabinet members to President Biden. He worked for him in the Obama administration. Prior to that, he was director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when then Senator Biden was chairman. That said, the man who has the last word in calling the shots on international matters is, and this is one of the worst kept secrets in Washington, William Burns, the CIA director. It's a foregone conclusion that if Secretary Blinken decided to retire, he would move up in much the same way Mike Pompeo did from Langley to Foggy Bottom. Um, he is the one who will talk to people behind the scenes his counterparts in the intelligence world. And I dare say he's one of the best informed people in Washington. All right, well, let me ask you about this then, John. Forgive me for interrupting. Because the, the problem that has always existed is, you know, Washington, D.C. is a city of arrogance, of people taking the positions they have and feeling that they are their own czar and their own king of their own area or division. So that happened in, has happened in every administration. Do we have a situation then when a gentleman like that is a very important guy, potentially could move up to replace Blinken, they know that the president is, shall we say, fragile. Uh, does he, do people go to him as if he's really the one that's the decision maker more and rely upon him more than the president? They already are. I mean, the fact is that Burns is considered a, powerful head of intelligence, someone who's trafficked in the de democratic world. And I dare say he probably knows a lot of the world leaders and world leaders to be better than the president or the secretary of state. So you ask uh, about them going to him. I think they already are. 
So do you think you think a, a, a person that would work for Putin or a Putin or this uh, Ukrainian head of state would go to Burns and say, what, what the heck is this guy saying? Or okay, they already are. And again, Mr. Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, uh, a very nervous person at this point, I would say, is probably already reaching out to them and the back channel of people in Ukraine who know the president and know William Burns are probably already on the phone. Safe line, I might add. So you have William Burns, who's a de facto boss of sorts, uh, basically uh, because Kamala Harris uh, is not seen with as much regard as former vice presidents in either either party. So she she is not looked at as the person you'd go make the deal with, or am I wrong? Let me put it this way. As the Washington dinner party circuit comes back to life and people in Georgetown gossip over the table, inevitably one hears comments and analogies made regarding the current vice president that some of us who were around in the 1980s and 90s heard about Republican Vice President Dan Quayle, whom I admired, by the way, and knew. He got a very unfair treatment, but that's how it was, and it rendered him ineffective in national politics. The same one can see very easily across the table about Kamala Harris. And I regret this, but I have to say it, to put it subtly, she is the Democratic Dan Quayle. Well, then let me put another concept in your head and for your consideration and your uh, analysis. Hillary Clinton is trying to position herself to be the candidate that may replace the president should he not run for another term. But is her consideration, her thought on this is to replace Kamala Harris so that if Kamala Harris decides all of a sudden to step down and then Pro President Biden leaves for one reason or another, she would assume the position, therefore becoming a president without actually having to run. And when she would have to run, she'd run as an incumbent. I tend to doubt that for one reason alone. Hillary Clinton, in case you don't know, will be 77 years old by the time of the next presidential election. At this point, I do think that Americans are getting a little tired of people who assume the presidency when they should be pondering retirement. And I might add something. I just finished reviewing a book, Campaign of the Century. It's a good book on the 1960 election. That's when one had at a time America was very forward-looking and looking ahead to the future, the youngest median age of major party candidates in history. John Kennedy was 43, Richard Nixon 47. I think there's going to be a desire with the country to get fresher faces and not dust off someone from the past. And think about it, John, at that point, when President John F. Kennedy was 43, he was still considered uh, older middle age because at 50 years old, people would get the gold watch and retire. We got to take a little break. We're speaking with our wonderful guest, John Gizzi, who is the chief political correspondent and White House correspondent for Newsmax. I'm Blanquita Cullum. This is a hard question.
Not everything that's reported on television is true, but it ought to be. NTD, a New York-based global television network, is independent, reliable, and fact-based. We don't decide where the news happens. What we do is cover it. Check out NTD and you'll know. We believe in the strength of our nation and the hope in our shared humanity. NTD broadcasts uplifting and inspiring programs that enrich your life and bring you joy. Turn on NTD, America's television legacy in the making. Find your local channel at ntd.com TV or call 680-201-4999 or call 680-201-4999. Today on The Hard Question, we have a spectacular journalist, one who is so highly regarded, award-winning, joining me on the program. I am joined by my good friend, John Gizzi, and of course, you know, I'm Blanquita Cullum. And John, um, Jen Psaki's had to, the, the White House press spokesman has had to run back a few things from the, the, the Biden press conference. And one of the things that she was having to discuss, she said that the Biden administration, somebody suggested to her, had uh, supported defunding the police. And she said the Biden administration had never proposed or supported defunding the police. Now, at what point does the Washington press corps, even if they support the president, start questioning their own veracity as to what's really been said or not. I mean, I saw that happening yesterday with some of the questions. They were not as friendly from people that have been supportive of the president in the past. This happens when a president is perceived as a lame duck or a wounded bear. Certainly this was the case with President Carter after Americans were being held hostage in Iran. And one saw it um, as well with the elder George Bush as he prepared to seek re-election, uh, that uh, both had set out to court the White House press corps, both put aside differences in the past, and both were being slammed when they were down. But the difference was, John, yeah. the difference I would respectfully point out, he's not even really completed the first year. No, he completes the first year today. He has been Correct. in office one year. That's All right, one year today. But th when you talk about Jimmy Carter, when you talk about uh, the former president Bush, they were going to run for re-election. We have, you know, three years to go here with uh, President Biden, and, and the approval rating now is at 39%, 20 points underwater. This is shocking. It certainly is. And again, what I always caution people who say he's finished is this. I've also watched presidents recover over a period of time. I was in the East Room when President Obama came out and said we were shellacked in the midterm elections of 2010, yet he came back to win. Bill Clinton watched as Republicans took control of the House and Senate in 1994 for the first time in 40 years. And he probably began to work with the Republican leadership. I would say if we look for a new and streamlined Joe Biden, 
wait till after the November elections, because if the prognostications are accurate, if the 28 Democrats leaving the House uh, is an indicator of some kind, and Republicans win control of both houses of Congress, he will be the old Joe Biden, the Biden he campaigned on, the great compromiser. Maybe, maybe. When you talk about Bill Clinton, former President Bill Clinton had one very important difference. Other than the fact that he was much younger, he had, was charming. He had, and people liked him, whether or not you didn't like his outside activities and you had questions about Paula Jones, et cetera, people liked him. They, 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 were, they were charmed by him. President Biden has seemed to waver on how he addresses his audience. He sometimes is angry. He sometimes calls him down. If someone asks a question that he's not particularly impressed with, he blows them off. And I wonder here if you're going to see if the House then goes into the camp of the Republicans, the Democrats rethinking how they're going to deal with the next couple of three years. Well, again, if nothing else, Joe Biden can count numbers as he did as chairman of the Judiciary and Senate Foreign Relations Committee, as he did when he was vice president, and was then, by the way, a pivotal player in the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I do think at this point that the old friendship with Mitch McConnell just might be rekindled at that time, because to put another way, with a Republican majority in the House and Senate, where would he go? Where would he go and what would happen? I mean, I think people are concerned with the line of succession. Uh, the line of succession right now would go to Kamala Harris, then to Nancy Pelosi. But if it if there somehow changed, it could go to a Speaker of the House that could potentially be a Republican. Sure, exactly. If the Republicans take control, Kevin McCarthy, uh, the minority leader, would become speaker and two heartbeats from the presidency. Similarly, uh, on the Senate side, if Republicans uh, won control, Chuck Grassley of Iowa would be the Senate president. And, and he's old. Yes, he'll be 90 at the time of his next reelection. And you believe that he'll get reelected? That's what people in Iowa tell me. And uh, he comes back and visits every county and spends a day in each county every year and holds town meetings. And he's never really uh, gotten Potomac fever, as they always say. Yeah, they, he's one of us. He's a good guy. And the other thing is I've noticed with uh, Chuck Grassley, and, and I have to give him this credit, he's like a lot of the great World War II veterans that I'll meet that are still surviving that they may be older, but they have not lost their, they've not lost their mental capacity and, their, and they, you know, he has not lost that at all. No, exactly. And so, so, uh, so uh, in that regard, do you see then any kind of attempt by Nancy Pelosi to kind of bridge together the, the progressive left with the middle of left and to the more moderate left? I mean, back in the day, you and I can remember there were blue dog Democrats. Sure. 
And that's all seemed to go by the by the side now. And if the Democrats take a real beating in this next, I mean, what happens to the Democratic Party? Well, for one thing, it is inevitable that the Democratic Party will veer to the port. As someone who watches primaries closely, I have seen uh, centrist Democrats go down for the count to someone of the progressive stripe. Case in point, four years ago, when um, Mr. Crowley, chairman of the Democratic Conference, considered the heir apparent to Nancy Pelosi. Now hold that thought. Hold that thought. We'll make that our cliffhanger, John Gizzy from Newsmax. I'm Blanquita Cullum, and this is The Hard Question. Every 40 seconds in the U.S., a child 18 years and under is abducted. Human trafficking happens in every community regardless of race, gender, culture, or socioeconomic status. I'm Andy Berger, founder and chair of Voices Against Trafficking. My passion to turn the tide on criminal predators is fueled in part by my personal experience as a child sex trafficking victim. For decades, I've been a voice for the voiceless, but I need more voices, your voice, to help bring justice to those who sell human beings for a profit. Voices Against Trafficking is a national and international partnership made up of individuals, businesses, law enforcement, nonprofits, survivors, and more who are dedicated to winning this fight. One of our members, Kathy Haddam, says, One voice has tremendous power, but when voices unite collectively to combat human trafficking and sexual exploitation, an unstoppable movement is born. Add your voice by clicking join at VoicesAgainstTrafficking.com. Together, we can be one voice for the voiceless. I left you with a cliffhanger from John Gizzy, that wonderful chief political correspondent from Newsmax. And we were talking about what happened. What there was a point in our in our recent, we say, political history where there were more blue dog Democrats, uh, and now we've seen more progressively left Democrats. I asked the question to John about what happens here if there's a shellacking. On the uh, on the Democratic side of the aisle and this upcoming election, what goes from there? And you were giving us some political history, John. Yeah, four years ago, Joe Crowley, chairman of the House Democratic Conference, considered a very possible heir to Nancy Pelosi as Speaker. Suddenly, lost the primary for renomination to a little-known and very young bartender by the name of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And this scenario has been repeated elsewhere in New York and around the country. Uh, I looked just before I came on with you, Blanquita, at a list of the 28 Democrats who are retiring. Carolyn Maloney from New York, uh, I might add, who is um, Chelsea Clinton's congresswoman, is going to retire. And at this point, I'm not sure whether Chelsea Clinton will run, but the successor will be from the progressive wing of the party. This is the East. That's fascinating. So if you look at it, and I've seen this in the last decade, the Democratic Party at the level of state legislature, Congress, uh, veers to the left. Let me ask you this, John, because a lot of people would say, that's almost stunning. 
with the idea of defunding the police, the, the rise in violence, the corona, you know, the coronavirus, people being isolated. They feel like they're losing their freedoms. They have to have their vax passport to get into a building. People are saying, um, wait a minute, we've seen what happened in Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York and Chicago with violence going up. Um, do you, th some people would say, have the Democrats lost their mind? Do they really think that people want this when people are exiting cities and states and trying to go to a safer place? Do you think that the progressive point of view will be successful? I'm not sure, and it's not important what I think, it's what the Democrats think. And let me give you an example of someone we mentioned earlier. You speak about Hillary Clinton. It's almost forgotten, but she very narrowly avoided defeat for nomination at the hands of Bernie Sanders. Uh, and this is amazing. Former first lady, former United States Senator, Secretary of State, past nominee for president, nonetheless managed, past candidate for president, managed to pull off nomination over a self-styled socialist uh, who beat her in the New Hampshire primary, in the Michigan primary, and in a lot of places. So it's not important what I think. It's important what the people who go to the polls in the Democratic Party think. Let me talk to you about another Democrat that uh, took a very controversial position on the filibuster. And I'm talking about uh, Mr. Manchin. Yes. And he talked about throughout the last decade, there's been a broad bipartisan support protecting the filibuster. He made a very impassioned speech about his position. He also basically talked about the lack of, of uh, collegiality between the members on the Senate and the House and how they would get together and they would support each other personally, even if they would vote against each other. And then it's, he said, I respect that, you know, this is a respect is a two-way street. I respect that they've changed. I would hope they respect I have not because he's been attacked by his own party and vilified to the point that he's gotten threats. What happens there? Clearly, it appears he's got the support of his own state. Very much so. Uh, and uh, does... And so, and and he's being, you know, uh, coerced or at least uh, invited to join the Republican Party, which in a way would be sad if he would leave his own party because they can't deal with someone who's independent. Uh, I I question whether or not the party really has its act together as a majority overall party, but listening to the minority aspects of their party that will cause them a loss of votes. I was at a press breakfast with the president of the AFL-CIO late last year, and she pointed out that some of their members are upset, not only with Senator Manchin, but Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. And she specifically did not rule out there would be primary challenges to both primarily because of their position on the filibuster, which is supporting it. Now, um, as one who's covered the state of West Virginia and knows many of the political figures, I can tell you, Joe Manchin will not become a Republican. He is a Democrat. His uncle, Jim Manchin, was the longtime Secretary of State, signed every liquor license there was. Um, Joe Manchin was a two-term Democratic governor. 
Uh, he has been in the Senate and won repeatedly. He had a little scrape last time running against the Republican Attorney General, but he survived. And he's the only Democrat in statewide office and the only member of the Mountaineer State's congressional delegation who is a Democrat. Someone like that is not going to go. It's in his bones. Uh, well, I would agree. I think he's probably going to stay too, but let me throw something out that might be of interest to you. You know, because he could literally keep his Senate seat and still run for president. He could run for president and he might be the candidate that would be able to pull over the missing middle, even from a Republican side that may or may not want to have President Trump back. I um, I would say it's an intriguing scenario. But one thing we want has to remember, increasingly, when I talk to political activists and regular people, they want new faces. Joe Manchin's been around a long time. He's 74 years old. He's very familiar. Uh, I was in London last week, and people reminded me Prince Charles is 73 and still waiting to be king. And so it is with a lot of politicians. You mentioned Hillary Clinton. You mentioned Paul Manchin. Right. It's time to move on. So then who would you see? Or, you know, you have a big vision and you're around the country and know that what's happening. Who would you see arising up that is a younger person or younger people that may be under consideration that could run for president? Well, for one thing, um, Governor Gavin Newsom of California doesn't care what his fellow Golden State Democrat, Vice President Harris, is going to do or thinks she's going to do. He's running. He's already got a team that's in fighting trim from the recall. Uh, Does it hurt him that he's related to Pelosi? Is he related? Yes. Well, that he comes from San Francisco? No, no, that he's related to Pelosi, I believe, through family. Okay, I always learn something from you, BQ. Uh, I'm not sure. I would also mention Governor Roy Cooper of North Carolina, who is a centrist Democrat in the mold of Bill Clinton, a two-term governor who's beaten back some pretty strong opponents in his day. The other thing, the midterm elections may just yield someone we don't know yet who could rise up because there is a vacuum of leadership. And I've seen this before with the British Labour Party, with the uh, Social Democratic Party in Germany. Someone just rises up and seizes the moment. And uh, I don't want to say any names right now, but I'm saying we could have a Democrat, another Barack Obama, who comes out of nowhere. And how about on the Republican side of the aisle? People are taking it for granted that President Trump will run again. He certainly acts like it. And right now, if you asked him, he'd say yes. On the other hand, he's engaged in some new business ventures with his communications company. Uh, California's Congressman Devin Nunez resigned from office to run it. Uh, that could occupy him. Certainly, we know in New York, He's under fire in court for things. I don't yet know the details of the case or the veracity of it. But I know Republicans told me at the National Committee meeting, for the most part, they were committed to the one they call the president. But if he doesn't, they quickly add, there's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, right. South Dakota Governor Christy Nome, Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, and... Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who has a very busy schedule 
these And he's lost a lot of weight, they say, in preparation. 90 pounds in six months. He looks pretty good. Let me ask you something very quickly, because I know we're going to go to a break in a bit, but should the uh, House uh, be taken again over in the control of the Republican Party, which many people think it will happen? Yes. What happens to those people that have been incarcerated since January 6th? Do they have a hope of being able to have any kind of public trial? Do they have an opportunity to have what people would say their justice, uh, you know, their rights honored as opposed to have been denied? Does that change with the overthrow of the, the party's leadership if it become, goes into the Republican leadership? The only one who could actually change that, barring resolutions that could be passed by the Republicans, is the president himself. Um, Greg Kelly on Newsmax TV urged before Christmas President Biden to visit the prisoners and then to pardon them and just end the divisive debate. Democrats don't want that. They want them tried and they want this issue to stay alive, as you can see from the hearings of the January 6th commission. Sadly, I don't think this will change for many of them, but just perhaps their personal stories will be illuminated with a Republican I think House. people um, overall, regardless of which side of the aisle that they are on, are feeling the, uh, I guess, the stress of so much isolation, the warring factions between the House and the Senate, the idea that uh, the country does not have a sense of kind of a balance the concern about the rise in prices, the the threat potentially of some war. How does that get resolved? We're going to take a little break. When we come back, maybe John Gizzy can give us a bit of hope on that. More from Mr. Gizzy, I'm Blankita Cohen, and this is The Hard Question. Not everything that's reported on television is true, but it ought to be. NTD, a New York-based global television network, is independent, reliable, and fact-based. We don't decide where the news happens. What we do is cover it. Check out NTD and you'll know. We believe in the strength of our nation and the hope in our shared humanity. NTD broadcasts uplifting and inspiring programs that enrich your life and bring you joy. Turn on NTD, America's television legacy in the making. Find your local channel at ntd.com slash TV or call 680-201-4999 or call 680-201-4999. We're back here on The Hard Question. I'm Blanquita Cullum, my great guest, John Gizzi from Newsmax. He's a White House correspondent with so much expertise and a political correspondent extraordinaire. Before I get your assessment of what's going to happen with all this crazy combustion and the political rumble that's going on, John, you're going to be covering the March for Life, which uh, their theme is Equality Begins in the Womb. I'm thinking about I was there two years ago when we had that that experience of Nick Sandman being, you know, uh, a guy went up to him and and tried to engage him in some political controversy. And Mr. Sandman was able to survive it. 
But this time, um, are we going to see that kind of drama and how many people will be coming to town, especially when you really can't get into town without a vaccine? Well, between COVID and the cold, and I just learned the temperature will be eight degrees tomorrow. It is going to be a diminished March. I was there last year and interviewed Congressman Chris Smith of New Jersey, uh, a participant in the March for Life since it began. And he said um, it was not as big as in the past, but the passion for the issue remains. And certainly with the Supreme Court taking up um, a case that may well lead to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and restoring decisions on abortion back to the states, that is going to be a reason alone for attention on the March for Life this year. I might add one thing I've learned. When I first started covering the March for Life, it was considered a Catholic thing. Now I find Jews, Protestants, Mohammedans, even Muslims coming to it. Well, I'm telling, I'm telling you, John, I'm looking at the list of people who are speaking. And to your point, you talked about Chris Smith. You've got Sissy Graham, Lynch, or Billy Graham. You've got uh, you've got the uh, Amer- American Orthodox Church, uh, members of Congress. Again, Congressman Chris Smith. I only see one Catholic to speak, which is interesting. Father Mike Schmitz, because you have a lot of the complaints from people about um the Catholic Church allowing folks like President Joe Biden, who supports pro-choice, to even receive communion. So maybe that's the reason we're not seeing as many high-level principles in the Catholic Church participating in this march. What are your thoughts? Well, this has been a subject for a long time. And um, look, Biden, uh, the burden of receiving communion is up upon the shoulders of those in church who would seek to present himself or herself. And the guidance from the Vatican has always been that if you are not in a state of grace or not in accord with the church, can't present yourself. You're stretching it because really one of the one of the fundamentals there, and this has been the big fight, and I think we can be honest about it. They recently had another protest almost a month ago in Baltimore, mm-hmm. and the protest was that basically you have to be pro-life if you know that someone is coming to receive communion and they've taken a position that is anti-pro-life, then they shouldn't receive communion. Let me move on to this real that quickly. That decision's up to the person individually, though. I mean, he or she should not present themselves. And that was a statement issued by Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger before he became Pope Benedict. And and right now, Ratzinger is being criticized because they say he averted his eyes to a lot of violations of children by priests. So I think that maybe my 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 thoughts on this, and perhaps I'm wrong, that that's the reason you're not seeing as many Catholic priests involved in this. The other question is, you have now the hotels in Washington, D.C. are accepting verbal religious waivers for one night only. And then the next night, if they don't have the vax, 
they're going to throw them out. People from Florida wrote me and they said the majority of people coming to March from Florida are unvaxxed. So these, this, is, this is going to turn out to be something that could be quite uh, con contentious. There's a lot of stories that are coming out and um, the, um, a lot of people who will come because of COVID and the vaccination laws are going to find themselves amid their own controversy, which deflects from the actual reason for coming, which is to stand for life. Um, overall, what will be interesting from this reporter's point of view is to talk to people individually saying, as we come into the 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, do we think things will be sent back to where they were before the court's decision in 1973? And it will be interesting to gauge the enthusiasm and how closely they've followed the case. Well, a lot of people have said that they're hoping this will be this, the last March, if that changes with a decision from the Supreme Court. Uh, one thing I wanted to run by you too, uh, you have this group, they filed an amicus brief, uh, the March for Life people. Um, there is a breakfast apparently tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. at the Capitol Hill Club. And a member of Congress resigned his membership today from the Capitol Hill Club because he refused to show a VAX card, and that's Congressman Chip Roy of Texas. Again, you can't get on an airplane without showing a VAX card. I was in Europe, and I found you cannot leave without being tested, which I went to the local drugstore in uh, the Hyde Park area of London and got a lot cheaper than you will do it if you try to do it online through the government. There are all kinds of regulations that are going to come up. Um, I just have to say this. We are on the precipice of seeing the end of COVID. And I just wonder why some have to make it a little difficult at this point. We can argue about this and about liberty. Let's just get this behind us right now. And to your point on this, John, before we, we get to the end of the time, because when we started the segment, I talked about the fact that there are so many that have, uh, they're, they're skeptics with each other. People are, have, we've seen in the Congress be more disrespectful with each other, more brutal with each other in this cancel culture. Um, and people are becoming fatigued toward the, the folks that are actually the voting public. You talked about there's a lot of older members in there. How does this get resolved? And do we see in this upcoming period more friction, or do we see any little semblance of light breaking through? What do you predict that's going to happen here? Former Congressman Bob Livingston, who was about to become Speaker and then stepped down, proposed that Congress end this three-day-a-week business and have it five days a week, the way everyone else works. That would mean that members would stay here weekends, bring their families up, and you would see a sense of camaraderie again. When I came to Washington, there were no paid trips every weekend to go home. So members brought their families. Often one could see members of different parties dining, members coached Little League with children of other members. 
and it led to a friendlier atmosphere. We're gonna hope that friendly atmosphere comes from your mouth, John Gizzy. As always, my friend, I encourage everyone to go to Newsmax online and check out John Gizzy's wonderful writing. We'll have you back on again soon. I'm Blanquita Cullum. This is The Hard Question.